Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Okay, today, I don't know, I, I, they're all unusual shows, I guess. This is an unusual show in the sense that we're, we're going to focus on two titans of comedy. We're going to spend a, a larger portion of the time talking about Robin Williams and then towards the end of the show uh, add a conversation about George Carlin. Um, a lot of odd things have happened in coincidence with all this. Uh, I guess we'll talk about them as we go along. Uh, the trigger for all this is David Scoff's uh, splendid biography of Robin Williams. It's called Robin. Um, it's a really interesting book, too. It has uh, more than most biographies. I think it has a kind of spring, summer, fall, winter um, cycle to it. Uh, I mean, I guess all of our lives are springs, summers, falls, and then winters, but uh, this one, I think, has that very, very acutely. We thought in order to uh, have a, a comedian uh, talk also about Robin Williams, it would make sense to have Carolyn Payne, a frequent guest on the show, actress, comedian, dancer, uh, founder, director, choreographer of kinetic dance. Uh, if I didn't say so already, uh, David Scoff is also a cultural reporter for the New York Times. A little bit later, uh, we'll uh, introduce our uh, George Carlin-related uh, guests. Um, I think maybe the best thing to do before we even start talking uh, to Dave uh, is just to kind of refresh your mind about Robin Williams. I uh, just stumbling around today looking at various things uh, on, on the interwebs. Uh, I came across one of his appearances with Craig Ferguson. Uh, and I think it sort of illustrates um, some very specific things about Robin Williams. So, uh, Betsy, let's just play that clip. When did you get married? What day is it? <laughs> Pretty recently. It was yeah, like it well, was after like a honeymoon, I'm a little low on protein. I hear you. <laughs> did you have to go to... Did you have to go all the way to protein? Well, you, Could you just be up a little tired of protein? <laughs> you have to go to protein. I'm a little tired. I'm running low on fluid. <laughs> when you hit 60, everything... What have we got left? Yeah. Give me some mucus, anything. We ran out of sperm. Let's go, people. Blood, urine, let's go. I like it when you're here, I can relax, you know. It's a bit like a Tourettean hotline. <laughs> is there a thing, is there like a positive Tourette's? I know sometimes in the, the negative Tourette's, like, people say things like, I'm Yeah. But is there a positive Tourette's where someone goes like, those pants are slimming! <laughs> do you think that, when Thanksgiving's coming up, do you think that's the rapture for turkeys? <laughs> that every year they go, get ready. <laughs> Some of us are leaving. And then the ones who don't get taken up are like, ah! <laughs> well, they're like that anyway, so yeah, it's all right. All right. Uh, another thing about that particular interview is that an awful lot of it, uh, for an awful lot of it, uh, uh, Robert Williams is, perhaps unsurprisingly, talking back to Craig Ferguson in essentially Craig Ferguson's accent. Um, so, David Scoff, um, this, you know, this is latter-day Robin Williams, and in an odd way, uh, it still resembles early day Robin Williams in that sense anyway, that sense that we get, which you kind of expose as somewhat uh, illusion uh, in your book, in that sense of this person who's just always on, always operating, you know, at 110 percent. 
Well, you can tell from that clip that, yeah, he still had a lot of vitality and also I think he was very much turned on by other people who were also uh, spontaneous in the way that, that he was. Uh, Craig Ferguson was a great kind of uh, foil to him in, in those appearances that it was it, – it's a, it's a little bit like a, you know, a, a prize fighter coming back into the ring and uh, he has to prove himself. He has to show that I'm just as funny and just as off the cuff as, as Ferguson and you can hear it again and even in that conversation – there are moments that are, I think, genuinely ad-libbed and then a couple that are probably uh, lines that he had in his back pocket just kind of ready to deploy uh, that, that sound uh, off the cuff. But, uh, but you're right. It's, it's, that's, that was not who he was uh, 24 hours a day. That was really just for the benefit of the cameras and I think uh, for the studio audience that, that could react to what he was doing. So speaking of him not being that 24 hours a day, I, I just want to also say that one of the things that Williams could do, and actually, Carolyn, I think you would confirm this too, is, I mean, listen to him. He goes to he goes from this conversation that's kind of going on inside his body where there's some you know, like office manager demanding more fluids be directed to this uh, clause of honeymoon sex to positive Tourette's to turkeys. And, you know, he's not really even setting up jokes the way a comedian typically would, right? He's all, He does it a little bit, but he almost... There's no sense of timing. He's just going to go there and you're going to run after him. Yeah, it's just a rapid fire. And I think that that's something that you can't even imitate. It was It's a quality that he had that is so unique uh, where he could just live in this stream of consciousness and just spew these things out. And they were – they all – like sometimes as a comedian, you, you throw something out there and it just isn't landing and you need that buildup or you need to rework it. But it felt like Robin Williams just had this spontaneous ability to just kind of always hit bullseye. Right. Or, and it was or, that he – and also like it, it, he would – you know, curate this stuff and, and create it. And it just kind of like lived inside of him. But it was so amazing how he could just spew these like wild. It was like a fireworks show, like the grand finale of a fireworks show was Robin Williams just constantly in performance. Right. And when you're moving that fast, if something doesn't land, you just keep going. Anyway, so uh, Dave, um, one of the questions then becomes, um, you know, where are the other Robin Williamses? And so the, your book, near the conclusion of your book, this is rather tender little story about you and Robin Williams going comic book shopping. Uh, I'll let you just say a little bit of it. I don't want to wreck the whole story for people who haven't read the book, but you know, we do see somebody no, else not- there. Yeah. Yeah, you're not spoiling anything. It, it, I mean, it was uh, in the midst of working on a profile of him for the New York Times and in one of our interviews I'd happened to mention to him, we were just talking about comic books in general, which we were both fans of. And I mentioned a store that I shopped at in New York and he said, oh, that, that's where I go when I'm in New York and maybe you know, the next time I'm in town, I'll, uh, I'll take you there. And uh, I didn't think it was anything that he uh, genuinely intended to do. But then uh, a few months later, I did get a call from him when he was in New York inviting me to, uh, to meet him there. And uh, it was pretty fascinating just to be in his presence in just in public. He didn't have uh, any like security around him. He didn't have an, an assistant or, or a handler. It was just him, uh, you know, with no barrier between him and, and the people who were also at this store. And, and people really were in sort of genuine amazement. And this is still in 2009. So again, late in his career, it wasn't uh, peak Robin Williams, but he was one of those people who was just so famous and that people were so... Uh, just dazzled by that the, the notion that he was a kind of live human being that you could interact with and, and see in your day-to-day existence really kind of flummoxed people. 
You know, the one time that I ever was in the presence of Robin Williams was on the set of The World According to Garp, and, and, oh, wow. and a bunch of journalists had been kind of ushered onto the set. It was uh, the scenes that were being filmed on an island out in the middle of Long Island Sound. And, and you know, I mean, we were just offered a chance to come see the set, and I'd love the book, and I just had interviewed Glenn Close for something else, and I thought, well, this will be great. And Robin Williams is like essentially there to greet the boat <laughs> as it lands, and, and he just started, he felt under some obligation. Here he is, you know, in his first major film role, you know, and he's already a pretty big star from Mork and Mindy. He felt under some obligation to entertain this bunch of journalists that he didn't know from Adam and, and you know, who were going to be there for a very short time. And he's just started to do material and somebody would throw something out at him, a little line, and he'd riff off of it. And I remember he did a whole Jack Daniels thing, which I guess is maybe a little closer to the bone than I had realized. But um and that's I, and, pretty hilarious. Yeah, but, but I, I mean, it's it, it's very consistent. Yeah. I think. I mean, it's it speaks to both that I think that the the desire of his, if if there were you know any any group of people, and a group of people could be two people. That on the one hand, he has that compulsion to want to entertain them, but also I, I think a a need to kind of please people. That that's something that he felt sort of obliged to do, and that. Uh, there's also a, a little bit of self-protection in that, that if he's performing or if he's in character, he's also kind of keeping his authentic self uh, a little bit at, at a distance from you, and it's uh, keeping him safe uh, from judgment. So, yeah, Dave, reading the book, I I, I return to that question all the time, um, yeah. you know, that question of is there – I mean the book ends, we should say, or I think one of the last themes in the book is this uh, whole idea that before a concert, before a concert performance, he was alone behind a door for 45 minutes. Nobody was allowed to dis- dis- uh, disturb him or talk to him or bother him and nobody really knew what he was doing in there but he had to have that time and, and you yeah. use it as kind of a metaphor. But I, I do feel as though this is a guy who was sidestepping fundamental questions about himself. you know. And so you, for example – uh, quote the fact that he would say, you know, this may disappoint everybody, but I had a happy childhood. And then you explore his childhood. And, you know, it doesn't really seem that happy to me. And you describe his parents as these two people who were kind of into each other in, in a way that often didn't make room for him. They'd go on these long trips, you know, and leave him alone with the help in this big mansion. I, I don't know. It It sounded like ultimately he was a little uncomfortable telling the truth about something as basic as that. Yeah, I think that that it becomes a hugely uh, important and influential dynamic in his life. That those formative years, as as you mentioned, uh, you know, his family was actually quite wealthy, and we think of uh, comedians often as coming. Uh, maybe maybe we'll talk more about this with Carlin as well. Coming from backgrounds of uh, some adversity or or hardship, and and certainly that was not Robin's life at all. That his uh, father was a very successful executive at Ford, and the family had to. Move Move a bit between uh, Illinois and Michigan, depending on where the company needed him at the time, and so uh, they're living in these, uh, you know, massive houses that with way more space than they need. The father, his father, was traveling quite a bit. His mother also was very uh, social and, you know, in, into, uh, uh, you know, fu- social functions, organizing parties, and and into his father and traveling a lot with him. Uh, both were on their second marriage. Each had had a child from a previous marriage who were not 
raised with Robin. So he grew up for a few years sort of believing himself to be an only child. And then when he was around eight or ten, learned about these two other half-brothers. So, uh, you know, the, the sense of, uh, I, th- I think, uh, you know, in some way not getting the affirmation that, that he felt he needed or wanted and also a lot of the, the solitude uh, that was time for him to kind of develop his skills that he'd use as a stand-up and a performer. But that loneliness definitely lingered with him through the rest of his life. And, and Carolyn, Carolyn, if there's one theme that probably runs through the lives of people who are performatively funny, whether they're comedians or some other kind of version of that, is I think you learn early on that you can get some attention that way, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think uh, my parents would tell you like that was uh, definitely an indication that I was going to be a performer was that, yeah, I, I mean, it, it is. And a lot of times, like... So for someone like like Robin Williams, that that like sense of loneliness that you're talking about that he may have had as a child. And I think for for me, thinking of that with him, it kind of makes sense that he would create all these characters and these voices that he could do kind of to keep himself company. And um, I, I know that sometimes like for for me, that need for attention, like I find like I'm more I, I want to use performing to get attention, but in real life, I don't want attention. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I, I dread, yeah, <laughs> I dread <laughs> having to have a conversation like at a grocery store <laughs> or anywhere. Literally, like, Grubhub is the best thing because I don't have to talk to anyone and uh, any anything where I don't have to talk to someone. So, and I think it's interesting that b- despite being like that, I am super eager to grab attention o- on a stage or, or in any sort of uh, performing venue or any any sort of place where I can kind of be outside who, who you actually are and, and kind of hide behind that. So, David Scott, really, the one thing that yeah. one thing that ties all this together. Well, go ahead. You're about to react to her, so go yeah, ahead. Yeah, no, I, I th- it's interesting because uh, you know, just as as you're sort of you know talking about uh, yourself. I mean, uh, there there are you know stories that people told me. I mean, people who were very in, important in Robin's life, whether it was his first wife uh, Valerie Velarde or Pam Dauber, who of course was his co-star on Mork and Mindy. When they each of them were first introduced to him, uh, he basically put on a character for them that with Valerie. He, they met at a bar. He pretended to be a Frenchman the whole night. Uh, you know, with Pam Dauber, they meet at their first uh, publicity photo shoot for Mork and Mindy, and Robin pretends to be a Russian man. And uh, again, it's this act of, on the one hand, wanting to you know entertain the other person or make them feel comfortable, but it's also on his part a little bit of uh, guarding himself. That if if he shows exact, you know, if he shows his true self to these people right away, and they were to reject him somehow, then that would be incredibly hurtful to him. And so this is, this is it's, you know, comedy as a, a sort of an act of self-protection. Right. I mean, there's a way in which the mask becomes comfortable. His idol, Jonathan Winter, yeah. Winters had, have tri- would have trouble even getting out of his Maud Frickert uh, character occasionally because, <laughs> I mean, he was like, Mental, really mentally ill at that point, but um, but yeah, I mean the story that you tell in the book just to w- once again emphasize it a little bit. He meets Valerie, and she's from New Haven. We should point that out. He meets uh, Valerie, and he spends the whole the whole night talking to her in a French accent. She does not know that he's not French. She ta- thinks she's talking to some French guy. I mean, he just doesn't drop it, right? Yeah, no, and I, I mean this is this is the night that they're, they're both going to look back on as essentially their first date, and he's not even really himself. I, you know, she's totally taken by him, but she's not really seeing the the real man, and she's not going to totally get to know that person uh, for for a little while. And it's like he almost catfished are, are... her <laughs> <laughs> before there was such before a thing. Before there was such a thing, right. he's so innovative. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> 
Um, so this is another, this is kind of a sad thing. First of all, we should say that uh, when David Bowie died, Dave was nice enough to come on our show, and we had tried to get Caroline on the show, but I was the one telling her that David Bowie had died, so that, that just wasn't a good thing. So now I have, today I have to be the person to tell her that Coco the gorilla uh, has died. And, and so we'll circle back to you for in a second, Caroline. But, you know, of everything that I looked at to get ready for this, Dave, watching the mm. clip of Williams and Coco the gorilla was so interesting to me because I felt like looking at his face – I was seeing something, you know, some little fragment of all that stuff that that he really wasn't. Care- I mean, you don't have to. You can't pretend with animals. You can't impress a gorilla with how verbally funny you are <laughs> or how good your accents are, right? And so yeah. he's. I don't know. There was something very interesting going on there. Yeah, I think that that's a sign of real empathy, don't you think? That mm. if you can connect just with another, uh, another, uh, just another living creature in that way, it has to be on a kind of a heart level or a soul level. Because the, you're right that all of our kind of uh, verbal, higher level communication is is useless in in those scenarios. And I think it really does sort of show you, uh, you, you know, just his Robin's ability, in particular, to uh, you know to to sort of reach out in in that way that would whoever whatever he was dealing with it was always uh, you know always an attempt to understand that 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 other person or being in, in some way uh, okay now you can do your thing is it like comedians like Coco or something I, or? yeah I mean, Colin just shook my world telling me right when I got here that he burst out with Coco uh. the gorilla died and I I had to have a moment um, I I grew up loving Coco. There, there was that book that came out, yeah. like it, you know, all, where she had the kittens, all ball. the kitten, yeah, and um, uh, you know, watching. I remember seeing that video of Robin interacting with Coco and Robin Williams. One of the things about him that I think is true with a lot of a lot of comedians, and maybe it's that need for attention in some ways. It, it has this childlike quality. And that was something that really like came out when you saw him interacting with Coco. There, it was like this very pure, playful uh, moment that that just was, you know, exactly like shield down or shield up rather, and just kind of. Uh, it, I, it was very sweet. And Coco, I mean, had a lot of those interactions, like the one with Mr. Rogers and, and Betty White, where you just saw. And uh, I, I mean, I, I'm I'm just shook by this <laughs> this Coco <laughs> news today. But, so, well, one, one of the ways this may be a forced segue, uh, but one of the things that comes out in your book, Dave, that may uh, suggest some kind of a relationship to Coco is that Robin Williams was, as we, I guess, know from Fisher King and other places, really hairy and smelled kind of bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he certainly had a bohemian uh, period. I, I think that the, you know the transition from growing up in the Midwest to basically arriving in um, Marin County, California, in 1969, and the tail end of the Summer of Love, and into an extremely uh, liberal community, and, and and you know that's basically uh, you know the mindset that he went, took into college and to Juilliard, where he was very regarded as you know a very you know bohemian. Uh, figure and somebody who uh, you know didn't necessarily feel the need for uh, you know basic uh, hygienic rituals and that sort of thing. But yes, the, I mean the the hairiness was something that was part of him from very early on, and uh, <laughs> yeah, that that certainly was a, a sort of a prime requisite of his for uh, for most of his life. Yes. Right, and well, you describe a you know sort of a 
Depardieu like earthiness. I mean, I think Pam Dopper <laughs> Dopper says that he would sit on her and fart on her. Um, yeah, well, I mean, they had a pretty you know unusual relationship in that way that they. I mean, and, you know, they were both about the same age. They had both come, uh, you know, lived parts of their life in in Michigan, and they really had almost a kind of uh, a sibling like uh, you know interaction that they both uh, you know really connected with each other in that way. And I think in some ways tried to look out for each other, but also I think you know Dauber understood very clearly that Mork and Mindy was was you know Robin's vehicle. She was a Essentially, the uh, in in their in their double act, the uh, the straight woman, and there to react to his jokes and, and to be a kind of the, the the you know the the grounding force. He was the one who was allowed to kind of take off and go nuts, and and uh, that was something that I think she had to uh, kind of get used to, especially in that first season of the show. So, Carolyn, uh, we know and, and reading uh, Dave's book, uh, he's m- married to three very beautiful women and had kind of an interest in other women at certain times and you know and and this is a part of him that you don't really entirely relate to yeah robin williams as a sex symbol is not something i really get uh, <laughs> i i think that he you know being a comic is a lot like being a rock star you're up on stage in front of thousands maybe millions of people and there's like this like power and appeal that can come with that uh so it's not you know, it's not hard to understand how, like, he would have had no trouble finding sex whenever he wanted it. I mean, personally, like, I... You, I, you would not be one of those I, solutions. I'd be, I'd be all set. Yeah, he's just a little too sweaty and, <laughs> and, and hairy for me, but, you know. Uh, <laughs> but there's also, I mean, there's, like, an intellectual aspect. Like, and, and the the idea, I mean, he, he just is such a, or was such a brilliant man and, and, you know, so funny. Like there's, there's kind of that intellectual attraction that probably factored into this as well. And it certainly sounds like that with his relationship with Pam. Yeah. Never boring anyway. Yeah. Um, all right. So we're going to talk more uh, with Dave about his book. I want to get into uh, the Robin Williams movie career. We'll grab a quick break and we'll uh, talk after that. Hey, Alexander Higgs, House of Missiles. Come on down. Let me show you someone. We got this lovely ICBM here. They can't hear you coming. Boom, they blow the off the world. Look at this over here. We got a designer cruise missile. Ooh, la lava boom. Look at that there. Look at this one over here. What is a cruise missile? What is a cruise missile? The missile goes, look, a city, let's destroy it. (laughs) Every time I do that, I feel like Richard Simmons. Let's go, girls, let's go. Five, six, seven, and move it, move it, move it, move it. The man is so cruel to women, and they love it. He goes, you call those I've seen better lumps than oatmeal. (laughs) Put them together, honey, make one good one. Let's go. Those are not cabs. Those are steers. Let's move it. You may have had an hourglass figure, but your time is up. Let's go. Let's move, now let's go. The man has a house with nothing but closets, so he can go, I'm in, I'm out, I'm in. Strange. People people over here going, what the hell's he doing now? (laughs) Catch up. (laughs) 
from An Evening with Robin Williams. Uh, we're talking about him today with David Scoff, a cultural reporter for The New York Times and the author of Robin, uh, a fascinating biography of this man, Carolyn Payne, uh, a comedian, among many other things, also in the studio with me. This th- That little clip reminds me of something that I said to Jonathan, the producer, before I went on the air today, which is you watch some of his old stuff and you realize he he couldn't do some of this stuff now. You can't just be funny pretending to be gay or pretending to be black or just having an Indian accent or there's like a whole lot of things that tripwires that he would kick now that would, would kind of go go off in his face a little bit. I'm sure he'd find uh, something else to do. Um, Dave, I have to talk. There's one thing that you bring up in the book and I was so happy you did it because it was when I just absolutely decided that this guy was a genius and we couldn't find the clip today and I'm not sure it would work on the radio but pretty early in his career <laughs> he did a thing where he he talked about, he said this is what it li- it's like when a comedian bites the big big one and on stage yeah. he simulated bombing as a comedian where he would throw to himself in this kind of simulated control room running around flipping switches uh, trying to access material. There's this Peter Lorre voice that's kind of chewing him out for doing pee-pee caca. You know, and it is just the most remarkably meta, self-doubting thing I've ever seen a comedian do, and no other person could possibly do it. Yeah, I think it, it, it sort of recalls, I think, one of the other se- one of the other bits of his that you played at the beginning where he is, you know, imagining, he basically he's sort of splitting his consciousness into different parts and playing playing all of them sort of in real time. But as you say, in reaction to a joke of his failing. And I, even though it is uh, essentially a humorous routine, it is certainly grounded in a reality for him, which is a fear of failure and a fear of rejection and all the different parts of him that are activated when that would occur on stage, which didn't happen all that often, but it certainly uh, befell him at the start of his career. And it, it, the routine certainly shows you the extent to which he he did or had thought about uh, how it felt to be rejected by an audience and, and how much that wounded him. And that would uh, certainly across uh, his film career where, it, you know, you had very sort of tangible uh, indicators of whether you were succeeding or failing. You had box office results. You had, uh, you know, movie reviews. You had award nominations and victories that told you pretty quickly if you were doing the right thing or not. And those were things he took very much to heart over the course of his career. Right. There's one point that I, that you make in the book that I think is really important. I mean, it's actually a bunch of different points. And that is everything that we just heard in both of the Ferguson clip and that one, these melanges of comedy. There's a lot of things in in there besides just the illusion he's projecting that he can just go like this, you know? And, and, and you know, there is, for example, a, a lot of it is a little bit more planned out. You describe the way in which he kind of, he and his publicists kind of circulated the idea, pr- promoted the idea that a lot of what he did on Mork and Mindy was completely improvised, that he would be given just pages of blank space to, to work in that wasn't true, and sometimes his improvisations bombed, and he had to go to the material that had been written for him, which actually worked better. There's also, of course, this long-standing thing that other comedians were very distrustful of him uh, because he, he might steal their material or just repurpose yeah. it for his own use. And, and Billy Crystal, one of his closest friends, says a really interesting thing, which is it's not the material a lot of the times. It isn't that the joke is so great that he's saying. It's that he's doing it in just a... It's, it's the difference between Bill Russell and Michael Jordan, you know? They're both great, <laughs> but Michael Jordan is moving a lot faster than Bill Russell ever. Ever could. 
Yeah, it's interesting because, uh, you know, one of the first places that he and Billy Crystal crossed paths uh, was in 1978 at this uh, benefit concert for, uh, you know, a, a venue in San Francisco that was, uh, you know, kind of at, at risk of, of shutting down where they the boarding house where they'd both. It was really more of a, a rock uh, venue, but they both pr- played there as uh, comedians. And so, uh, you know, at that point, uh, they had the same managers and they weren't yet friends. They were kind of, uh, you know, sniffing each other out a little bit to see, well, is this person going to be uh, a rival of mine? Is he going to take work away from me? And uh, Billy at that point was he, – he'd already finished his first season on Soap and was about to start season two. He knew that Robin was about to do his first season on Mork and Mindy and Billy was very openly uh, or at least in retrospect envious of, of Robin because on Soap, even though Billy was playing this kind of renowned character, one of the first openly gay characters on uh, episodic TV. It was that was the only character he could play on that show. Whereas he knew that Robin going into Mork and Mindy could basically use that as a vehicle to play whoever he wanted and do whatever he wanted it, within the very sort of gener- generous boundaries of that character. And it was something that uh, you know a, a he was he was openly jealous of. So there's this Robin Williams, uh, the Robin Williams we've been hearing and talking about here. There's also an actor, a Juilliard trained actor um, who in the early stages, I think, really struggles, really toggles between those two things. And and some of the acting teachers that you talked to, Dave, were a little distrustful of him. One of them says something like, you know, he never really had a foundation uh, for his acting. Uh, yeah, I mean, he certainly. He, I mean, even even by the time he got to Juilliard, I mean, he had put in a few years. He he went for three years to the College of Marin, which is actually a two year <laughs> school <laughs> in uh, Northern California. But he had focused primarily on acting there and been in a lot of stage productions. You can literally read newspaper reviews of him playing Fagin in Oliver or Snoopy in You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, getting great notices there. So by the time he came to Juilliard, they knew he was very. T- Talented, but he also they felt, uh, and this will not surprise you, that he wasn't very disciplined, and that you know he kind of chafed at the idea of structure. And even while he was at Juilliard, he was still slipping out to do mime performances on the street and other <laughs> other kinds of, of acting. And not that the mime uh, upset the Juilliard faculty, but just the idea that they they couldn't totally regulate this guy. That you know he, he I mean, he was in student productions there. He got along well. He was well regarded. But ultimately, he withdrew from the school as a kind of mutual decision. He didn't finish his uh, his training there in part because uh, you know, he couldn't get with the program. I mean, Carolyn, this is an interesting thing to watch too, right? I mean, and it's you know anybody who's funny and who once again you know when you're young you discover you can get some attention if you crave attention from your parents or whoever by being funny. It's a whole different equation when you're doing acting. You've done some acting and mm-hmm. comedic series and stuff like that. I'm I'm not sure if you've ever done like. Maggie and Tennessee Williams or anything like that. Uh, but, you know. I mean, I've done I've done some Shakespeare and yeah. and things like that. Uh, and I, I did some Moliere. I mean, that's no, comedy, that's right, I, I forget, guess. But yeah, <laughs> you know. But um, I I think that. You know, acting and comedy are two very different things, but there is often a crossover. Like you see a lot of comedians crossover into into acting and you see some actors, you know, attempt stand up comedy to try to help themselves with uh, like improv skills and things like that. 
But I think acting is a much more, it's a disciplined thing. And you're you're working with others. There's, And I think that that's where Robin Williams, like as, as an actor, I mean, he would have been fascinating to work with because I feel like you would have never gotten the same thing twice from him. Um, I think it would have kept, it, it would have really just been a, you have to stay on your toes to keep up with him and run as fast as you can because he's still going to outrun you in everything you do. Well, Dave, I, I jumped ahead in your book to the section about Fisher King because when, That's okay. if, if people ask me, well, I mean, I went back to, but um, uh, <laughs> but um, when people ask me what my favorite movie is, I'm as likely to say Fisher King as any other movie. Mm-hmm. And and one of the things that you, I mean, to Carolyn's point, you know, is Jeff Bridges came aboard uh, on this. This movie had two male uh, leads to it. Uh, Jeff Bridges plays this incredibly jaded uh, and destructive shock jock who uh, unintentionally uh, causes the, the death of a whole, whole group of people. And Robin Williams plays this guy who's basically a crazy person, more or less, living on the streets. <laughs> in the grip of this kind of fusion of Robin Hood and Arthurian romance. Um, yeah. and, and you say that Bridges showed up thinking, well, he's going to be wacky funny. <laughs> you know, I'm ready for that. And, and really kind of yeah. found a slightly different person there. Yeah, I mean, it's so it's so fascinating because, the, first of all, the, the role that Bridges is playing is a little bit against type for him, that he's the much more kind of uh, buttoned up character, the more the, he's almost this kind of uh, uh, gloss on uh, Howard Stern or Don Imus, uh, not mm. not the most likable, uh, warm guy. And, and you know, it, it, he had not worked with Robin to that point and knew him only by reputation. And, and you know, Robin's film career was really in a groove at that point point that he had done uh, certainly Good Morning Vietnam, which was a huge breakout for him. He had done Dead Poet Society, which was a more subdued character, but also Robin had this reputation for being uh, just this electric uh, comedian and, and certainly for wanting to improvise a lot, not only on stage, but in, in his film roles. And so that's the kind of person that uh, you know Bridges was expecting. And, and he talked about a, a scene that he has to film where you know basically, you know, he He's in in a coma. Uh, you know the character is, and and just basically having to talk to him while he's in a coma, so he can't react and not not knowing how Robin is going to play that scene, and actually finding him to be very uh, tender and very attuned to it, and not not trying to turn it into uh, a, a, a joke or a bit, but taking it uh, very seriously. And I mean uh, Terry Gilliam, as you saw in the book, I mean told some pretty intense stories from that movie about how seriously Robin yes. uh, took it and how much he got into that character of Parry. Right. At one point, he's Williams is pushing himself kind of physically in addition to everything else. Yeah. And finally, uh, Gilliam says, this isn't good for you. I mean, he just gets, yeah. makes him just stop and take it down. You know, so I think, Carolyn, you can kind of divide the Williams career between some of these roles where he really mutes everything that we know about him. And, and as he moves along as an actor, is able to submerge himself into these roles. So whether it's Goodwill Hunting or, or Awakening, uh, or, or Fisher King, uh, he's able to kind of quiet down some of that, you know, just incredibly virtuoso comedy stuff that he can do. And then there are other roles that just let him do that, whether it's Good Morning Vietnam or I think maybe your favorite Aladdin. is... Aladdin. Yeah. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I really... So, I mean, Aladdin is where his performance as the genie in Aladdin, I think, is brilliant because you it, it's not... You're not seeing his face, but you can't... It, literally could not have been any other actor. And I think as far as like voiceover work goes, I I think that that is one of the best voiceover work 
performances that I, I can think of. Um, and I, I recently rewatched Aladdin. It was like on TV and I hadn't seen it since I was a, a kid. And it's still just so I think even more so I had even more respect for uh, how he utilizes the incredible instrument he had of this like voice to cr- create these characters and these nuances and everything. So I think that's to, to me, that is still one of Robin Williams best performances. Um, yeah, yeah I, no, I, th- I think it's 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 yeah. I was going to say, I mean, if you if you just listen to it as a, as a performance, it's actually, I mean, he's you know he's he's going into a million voices and characters and bits, but it's also you can hear how relaxed he is. That there is something about uh, you, you know being given the freedom to just go wild. Don't worry about sort of putting the brakes on yourself or having to rein yourself in. That I think is actually very uh, comfortable for him, and you can really hear it in. Uh, his delivery. I, I, you know, I said we're going to need to wrap this up so we can move on to George Carlin, but Dave, I said that your book, and it really is a wonderful book, I'm not just saying this, but it has this kind of, even more than most life stories, it really does have this spring, summer, fall, winter quality to it. And the winter is a very harsh winter. Yeah? And so the, the death which you go through it is, you know, it's almost like there's four or five deaths that are digested by the public and, and people around him slowly, you know, suicide, Parkinson's, depression, uh, ultimately losing Dewey body uh, um, problems, which are sort of, you know, a a condition that's not Alzheimer's, but probably resembles Alzheimer's more than anything else. This his final act was once again, this very complicated, layered set of questions. Yeah, I, I think you know it, it, it's it's understandable in a sense that uh, you know there wasn't a lot of information in the immediate aftermath of his death because it was so shocking not only to the wider world but certainly to uh, his family and the people that knew him intimately and it was difficult for them I think to uh, try to determine how they should communicate this uh, to, to people and it's 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 not an easy thing and and so you know there was a period of about a week where there was just a kind of total vacuum. And so people, you know, made just based on whatever, you know, little information that was out made sort of certain assumptions about, you know, why he'd taken his life. And and people kind of focused on, well, you know, was he depressed or disappointed about his career? And, you know, you know, none of which, again, I understand why people made those kinds of assumptions, but it wasn't it wasn't valid. It wasn't based on what had happened. And then about a week later, it can't, you know, his widow put out a statement and this was true that in in Robin's own lifetime he had been given uh, a diagnosis of of Parkinson's disease, and so I, I think that may have sort of furthered the assumption that it was, uh, you know, uh, something a, 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 a deliberate uh, choice on his part. So it was not until. Uh, many months after his death when his autopsy was released and part of which was, uh, you know, they analyzed samples of his brain tissue and, and, and found evidence of uh, Lewy body disease or Lewy body uh, dementia, which is, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a degenerative condition of the brain. It is similar to, to Parkinson's, but it's not just attacking the motor part of the brain. It's parts of the brain that involve, uh, you know, cognition and reasoning and, and decision making. And so, uh, you, you know, I mean, what he was experiencing Experiencing was was quite uh, terrible in the sense that uh, people who have this can have uh, you know in, in, in paranoia, mood swings. Uh, they can kind of uh, some people have hallucinations. They may shut down in their own body. Uh, so I mean, you can't really even say with certainty that when he died, he knew exactly what he was doing, or if he sort of understood. 
uh, you know, was was did he was he aware of who he was and what he was doing at the time? It's really it's really hard to say. Right. So yeah, reading your book and reading more about Louis Vardy than I had previously known, it struck me that some of those really hallucinatory episodes that Perry, like his character in Fisher King, has probably uh, may, may have resembled some of the realities of the end of his life. We're going to end on, end this conversation about Robin Williams on a happier note. Uh, we're going to end it in a way that will make uh, Carolyn Payne uh, happy, especially. <laughs> uh, and we're going to talk about George Carlin when we come back. Whilst I illuminate the possibilities. Well, Alibaba had them 40 thieves. Sherry's out, he had a thousand tails. But master, you in luck, cause up your sleeves, you got a brand of magic never fails. You got some power in your corner now. Some heavy ammunition in your camp. You got some punch to dance. Job, you and house, all you gotta do. I love words. I thank you for hearing my words. I want to tell you something about words that I... Uh, I think is important. I love, as I say, they're my uh, work, they're my play, they're my passion. Words are all we have, really. Uh, we have thoughts, but thoughts are fluid, you know. And then we assign a word to a thought, and we're stuck with that word for that thought. So be careful with words. I like to think, yeah, the same words, you know, that hurt can heal. It's, uh, it's a matter of how you pick them. There are some people that aren't into all the words. There are some people that would have you not use certain words. Yeah, there are 400,000 words in the English language, and there are seven of them you can't say on television. What a ratio that is. 399,993 to seven. They must really be bad. They'd have to be outrageous to be separated from a group that large. All of you over here, you seven. Bad words. That's what they told us they were, remember? That's a bad word. No bad words. Bad thoughts. Bad intentions. And words. Of course, that's George Carlin, uh, one of the most uh, famous uh, routines uh, or, or soliloquies in comedy uh, ever done. Uh, George Carlin died 10 years ago tomorrow uh, on uh, Sunday, June 22nd, 2008 of heart failure. He was 71 years old. Um, so uh, first of all, I wanted I have to do some thank yous right here. Uh, Jonathan McNichol, of course, is the person who produced this episode of our show. Betsy Kaplan's on the board because uh, Wolfie has someplace else she uh, needs to be. Uh, Jason Perez is our uh, terrific intern. Uh, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Kevin Hart uh, tomorrow. We're going to be down in New Haven. Uh, the Nose, our cultural panel, we've all, we all will have been to see The uh, Incredibles 2. I'm pulling kind of a Carolyn Payne. I haven't seen it yet, but uh, we'll see it tonight. Uh, anyway, uh, we're now going to talk about uh, George Carlin with James Sullivan, a journalist who covers popular and less popular culture, uh, the author of Seven Dirty Words, The Life and Crimes of George Carlin. We have two comedians who regularly appear on our show on On the Nose. I think they've never met one another, but Sean Murray no, is the have. other one. We you have. You have. Okay. <laughs> Sean Murray is the other one, stand-up comedian, writer, and host of Fantasy Filmball podcast. David Scott is still with us. His biography of Robin Williams is Robin, but he's cultural reporter for The New York times. He uh, knows about as much about comedy as it is possible to know. So this will be uh, interesting. So, uh, you know, uh, we just heard this kind of classic thing, James Sullivan, and we've been talking Robin Williams. I mean, these two comedians, they almost couldn't be more different. Or, or, is, that yeah. not, or is that a myth? Is, am I wrong about that? No, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, so, uh, you know, whereas obviously you've spent uh, quite a bit of time talking about how volatile and, you know, sort of, you know, uh, no filter uh, Robin Williams was, 
um, George Carlin uh, sort of set the guidelines for comedians who are much more studious than that. I mean, he sort of, you know, was, uh, you know, um, always had note cards and, you know, was very well scripted. I mean, you know, that, that bit that you just played might have been, might have sounded a little bit off the cuff, but um, it certainly wasn't. I mean, I think from very early on in his career, um, he was very well organized and prepared um, and it wasn't about shutting the filter off. Maybe it was in the creation process for him, but not in the delivery. Right. If you go back to early, I'm old enough to remember the George Carlin who would come on the Merv Griffin show and he'd do a routine about a drill sergeant for the for the Indians uh, when they were when they were fighting fighting the settlers. And in terms of stick and bit and that kind of thing, it's a little bit more Robin Williams like. Except every beat in it, as you're suggesting, uh, James Sullivan, uh, every beat is nailed down in a very specific way. Right. Well, that's sort of what, uh, you know, Carlin's uh, revelation was in the early 1970s, was that he was doing sort of old school comedy, you know, wacky characters and, you know, uh, impressions and, you know, um, creating wacky characters like the hippy dippy weatherman or whatever. But um, what he realized was that he wanted to hear himself in his own comedy and uh, wanted to talk about uh, what he found interesting, which is the, the bit that he played, uh, you know, indicates w- was in most cases the the language, our language, you know, as he said, it's all we got, so you might as well spend some time thinking about it, and he certainly did. I mean, he did this remarkable thing, too, I was saying to Jonathan before the show, which is, you know, for quite a bit of his career, he was kind of part of the culture, and so he'd be on the Jimmy Dean show, kind of making mm-hmm. fun of hippies, you know, right. and, and, like, he just walked through a door and walked back in, and he was part of the counterculture. I, was it as seamless as it looked? No, not necessarily. I mean, you know, he was, uh, you know, there were there were questions about bits that he was going to do on the Ed Sullivan show in let's let's say 1969 when he was, you know, he he did a he did sort of a funny little uh, poem about uh, Muhammad Ali um, and uh, Ali's fight to uh, you know um, uh, his conscientious to to uphold his conscientious objector status and not wanting to go fight in Vietnam, and uh, you know by that point Carlin had sort of grown the shaggier hair and a beard, um, but it really wasn't until 70 and 71 when he started really sort of, you know, distancing himself from the, the comedian that he had been and the guy who was sort of, you know, a presence on network television, whether it was Merv Griffin or, um, you know, sitcoms or those those sort of summer replacement show, variety show type things that he, that he did a lot of in the late 60s. You know, really it was in 1970, 71 when he just sort of decided. It was, a, it was actually an, uh, an episode in Las Vegas, um, where he was opening for Diana Ross, um, and um, he, uh, he got in trouble for saying one of the seven words, um, one of the milder ones, and um, <laughs> basically sort of decided that he was done with the, you know, sort of uh, either trying to appeal to everyone and trying to appeal to middle America by doing those TV shows and the, and the Vegas dates, and that he was going to do something else entirely with his comedy. So, Sean Murray, if I'd had to guess, I wouldn't necessarily uh, associate uh, you and your tastes with George Carlin. So uh, tell us what you're thinking about as we're talking about George Carlin. Uh, I always I always loved Carlin, but I, I feel like as I grew older, I kind of started appreciating Carlin more than I actually liked his comedy. Like, I always felt like, <laughs> I always, growing up, growing up, I always heard of Carlin as like one of the three greatest uh, along with Cosby and um, Pryor and like I used to laugh a lot harder at his stuff when I was younger and then as I got older I was like it was kind of just like I recognized that Carlin was very smart and very clever but like I, I very rarely find myself like laughing like uncontrollably at a Carlin joke these days. 
Right. I, I find that I'm kind of fighting that off sometimes in, the, I think, a similar way to you, Sean. But then he'll kind of overwhelm me. I watched a clip today where he was talking about self-help books. And, and he said that that's a stupid name because if you could help yourself, you wouldn't need the book. You know, and he said they should be called help books. Um, and, you know, I mean, after a while, like I, di- I was sort of like you, Sean. I, think I didn't want to laugh at that. And he kept hitting me with it until I, I had to laugh. No, he's definitely got some of those where it's like, I mean, he's he's funny. He's a, he's a great to me. He's one of the greats. But it's just like, like I feel like a lot of Carlin stuff was just like, I'm going to show you how smart I am, and there's also a few jokes. Right. Okay, that's a really interesting point. And David Scoff, uh, you're still uh, with us. I re- react to that a little bit. I mean, there is a way in which Carlin, it, he's his mastery of language becomes kind of a, a comic, what, I don't know, it becomes really his primary motif. Yeah, I think that was definitely intrinsic to uh, you know to to who he was, and and you know it, I mean previous guests have already talked about you, you know even though he had the sort of uh, you know in in a live setting he could certainly seem uh, you know free and fluid, but that there was a lot of care and preparation that went into the routine, and that it was very carefully uh, you know mapped out uh, in in advance. But yeah, I mean it was it became a kind of uh, you know almost a meta commentary on itself that you know he just. Got Got so into uh, the words and picking apart, you know, breaking apart a word and what it meant, and you know, the power of uh, you know a word having multiple meanings. That if you could, re- if you could really take it apart into its components, that you could kind of defang it, or you could show how uh, you know uh, just an, an element of language, uh, you know, how you can have mastery over it and and take away uh, you know the power that people use to lord it over you. We, unfortunately, are going to have to stop right there. I want to talk a lot more about George Carlin, who I'm also realizing I don't know that much about as a person. So what we're all going to have to do uh, is read James Sullivan's book, Seven Dirty Words, The Life and Crimes of George Carlin. Thanks to everybody who's been on this show. Sean Murray, stand-up comedian uh, down uh, in the New Haven area and host of Fantasy Film Film Ball podcast. Dave Itzkoff, his book is Robin Carolyn Payne, comedian and everything else uh, in studio with me. We're ending with a little bit of uh, Carlin... Almost kind of a little bit of George Carlin's version of jazz. Lactose intolerant. I like rough sex. I like tough love. I use the F word in my email, and the software on my hard drive is hardcore, no soft porn. I bought a microwave at a mini mall. I bought a minivan at a megastore. I eat fast food in the slow lane. I'm toll-free, bite-sized, ready-to-wear, and I come in all sizes. A fully equipped, factory-authorized, hospital-tested, clinically proven, scientifically formulated medical miracle. I've been pre-washed, pre-cooked, pre-heated, pre-screened, pre-approved, pre-packaged, post-dated, freeze-dried, double-wrapped, vacuum-packed, and I have an unlimited broadband capacity. I'm a rude dude, but I'm the real deal. Lean and mean, cocked, locked, and ready to rock. Rough, tough, and hard to bluff. I take it slow, I go with the flow, I ride with the tide, I got glide in my stride. Driving and moving, sailing and spinning, jiving and grooving, wailing and winning. I don't snooze, so I don't lose. I keep the pedal to the metal and the rubber on the road. I party hardy, and lunchtime is crunch time. I'm hanging in, there ain't no doubt, and I'm hanging tough over and out. Thank you. Thank you.